Welcome back to Art Smack. This is episode 17. I'm your host, Matt Capasso, and I'm here with... Jerry Gugosian. Jerry, what's going down? How you been? I'm doing wonderful, except for when I watch the news and imagine the apocalypse that could be coming. Yeah, we're going to get into that, people, so <laughs> buckle up. Also on this episode, Jerry and I watched the latest reality TV show about the art world coming out of MTV, and we have some thoughts. <laughs> we wanted to share them on the podcast. And as, as Jerry mentioned, we're going to talk about Silicon Valley Bank, the economy, recessions, and more importantly, what our artist listeners can do to prepare and to survive through what could potentially be a pretty dark financial time for the U.S. So, Jerry, anything to add before we kick it off? Buckle up. <laughs> Welcome back to Art Smack. So this week, Matt and I live stream what could have been the longest live stream in the history of Jerry Gagosian, an episode and full reaction. <laughs> what would you call it? reaction follow-up to the episode, the new show, The Exhibit, that is put out with the Smithsonian and MTV. And it's a, it's a TV show about a group of artists who are working or they're, it's so weird. They're competing against each other for $100,000 in cash and the opportunity to have a piece of work. They don't make it clear if it's part of their permanent collection, but a piece of it's work. Definitely not. Yeah. It's definitely not. A piece of work in the sculpture garden at the Smithsonian. Yeah, you get to be outdoor decoration yeah, for a month. For like a month. Yeah, they don't <laughs> even like make it clear. And it was a better watch than Matt and I mean, than Matt and I probably had initially thought it would be. I mean, Matt, what did you think about the show? Yeah, we did a, a piece on this show before it came out on this podcast. And we kind of roasted it, if we're being honest. Mm -hmm. The thing that I couldn't escape was the 2010s, 11s era show, Work of Art, which Jerry Saltz was a judge on, which was a competition in the style of Project One Way, the similarities between what that show did and what this one was trying to do, it was almost one for one identical. It was a $100,000 prize back in the early first show and an exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum, whereas this was a $100,000 prize and an exhibition at the Hirshhorn? Yes, yes, down in DC. And it was artists, contemporary creators doing each week a themed project and there's judges that were close to the art world. Back in the original show, it was Jerry Saltz, it was Bill Powers and a few other people. Jeannie Greenberg. Jeannie Greenberg. And then this time, at least in the first episode, we had people like Kenny Schachter, Melissa Chu, who runs the museum. Adam Pendleton popped in the first episode and then they've teased out some other artists that are going to be coming in. So I just felt like these similarities were so glaring and it really pissed me off that the new show was like Watch the first of its kind project at Pitt's Artists. And like, literally, it's not the first of its kind. So Jerry and I went in very skeptical and we were ready to roast it on that live stream that we did last week. 
But honestly, we were pretty surprised. Like, yeah. From my perspective, it was not only the production quality was pretty good, it, the, it flowed really well. They kept the cringe at an acceptable level. It certainly wasn't cringeless, but there was a lower level of cringe than I expected. I kind of like the way that this show differed from the previous one in the following respect. This one, it wasn't a weekly competition where one person was kicked off the show. They are looking at running this project for a few weeks, and then at the end, they will have a full body of work onto which would be judged. Whereas the earlier show back in the day was like, you know, the lowest person gets kicked off the show and has to leave the house, which is more typical reality TV, which I kind of think is a better structure if you're going to do a show about art in a reality format. Like you, you can't just think about one person's, one individual's single project they did in one week and then send them packing. Like I felt like doing this body of work thing was a better approach. They also, the, the artists that they chose to be on the show are, they're not, they're, the artists that they chose to be on the show are a bit more established totally. in terms totally. of their pr practices. So they're not babies. No. I mean, these people have very, very well established practices with with the ex I mean, even the one character who is like a self-taught painter who's on the show, she is still like from the way that they sort of go in and show her life outside of this little Hirshhorn universe that they, you know, that the show is set in. I mean, the girl paints like she's got yeah. a very real practice. And I'll just give you, I think you're, who you're referring to is for Warren. Yes. Yes. Sorry. She's a figurative painter. Um yeah, I think you're right. The, the composite, the makeup of this cast is, is much different than mm -hmm. the previous show, too. Previous show had people that were like, like painting was a hobby, basically. They had some full-time artists and people that were in the scene, quote unquote. But yeah. like, they also had people that just like Sunday painted. This is like everyone's kind of in the world in some way. Well, they have like my friend Nicole Nadu is on the Correct. first, and she's still very much an artist and practicing. But a lot of those other people that were on that original show, we kind of looked back and it's like, where are they now? And most of them have, you know, drifted into obscurity, which is the risk that I think and like the hesitancy that I think a lot of people had felt about going into doing something like this is that this could be like a career burning exercise, you know, that you can be so easily misrepresented on reality television because you're in the hands of television producers who are going to cast you in whatever they feel is appropriate to create X amount of drama to stir up whatever. <laughs> I mean, even like it was very funny in like the crit situation that happened towards the end of this of the sh the episode. Like, <laughs> first of all, it was it, that was probably the cringiest part because it was the least realistic. Like the the comments that were made about each of the works were like they were. They were extremely surfaced. I feel like I feel like those lines could have been more thoughtful, 
better rehearsed. Like you, you, you can be concise and give a a good short thirty second to forty five second critique soundbite that doesn't you know like interfere with like your time in between commercials and like get to the point of whether or not you think a work is good but they were just like "Mm, i don't like the juxtaposition of this or oh that banana is just very too on the nose and that was like one of the worst you know critiques for like misha khan's amazing banana that was one of the sculptures that was in episode one Melissa used a phrase, which is we've now added to the Hall of Fame art speak, which is tacticity. Yeah. This painting has tacticity. It wasn't even tactility. Which, yeah, or something like that. It was no, no, no. Tactility, fine. Like tactility, something that you like want to touch. But it was like tacticity. And we're like, what in the fuck does I was like, that mean? Guys, we're trying to go for a mass audience here. Like, can you just speak normally? Like, does, did no one advise them on the producer level? Like, Dude, keep the word juxtaposition to like once an episode. I think I heard that word five times. Or, or, or the other thing, like that, like the producer's like big misfire here is like why, where, who, when, like who is this random man from the MTV sphere (laughs) that they just parachuted in to be on this show? who clearly knows absolutely nothing about art, has no investment in these characters as human beings, the Hirschhorn as a space, what contemporary art is, doesn't seem interested in learning about it or knowing about it. He just, like, walks in wearing, like, the flashiest, craziest suits, like, bad chains and it is like all right so what's up welcome to the hirschhorn and then there's like fountains going off it's and it's Demetti, like his name is Demetti pongo and he's like the host he's like the ryan seacrest or whatever for american idol like he's supposed to be the conductor of this orchestra but our our criticism on that front was that like not needed. We had Melissa Chu there. We had Kenny Schachter coming in, Adam Pendleton. Like there was a lot of chefs in the kitchen for like pushing the plot forward. Like we didn't need someone on the outside who, like you said, I don't think he knows anything about contemporary art, at least like at all. It was kind of goofy. But on the Melissa Chu front, let's talk about a few. Let's things. get into Melissa, who is who is your queen, your newfound queen. I don't know if she's my newfound queen, but I have a lot to say about her. First of all, honestly, I I think she is the senior director of my heart. She has all the components, which is she dresses way above her pay grade, like in every single scene. I don't know how much you make as a senior curator at the Hirschhorn, which is like, what, a publicly funded museum? It's part of the Smithsonian family of museums. Okay, I'm sure you make... 300,000, maybe half a million dollars a year of taxpayer dollars. It doesn't matter. She's wearing a half a million dollars and outfit per scene. She looks per it, she's she is perfection in and, every single scene. And meanwhile, Shakhtar's wearing like Adidas sweatpants and like new balances. It's a bad look. He He's embarrassing, but <laughs> but but she just like looks amazing. 
She also, it's funny how very little she actually contributes verbally or sort of like on an intellectual level to the show. She is just purely like says everything with her aesthetic. Like, and I don't know if this is a good or a bad thing, but I think when people think art world, museums, scary, so sophisticated, I can't understand it or be a part of it. Unapproachable. Unapproachable, yeah. unrelatable. They got the fucking I poster don't, child for I that. don't get it. <laughs> I think the poster child is Melissa Jones, <laughs> and she is the host of the show. Yeah, is is a. I mean, I get why they did it. You got to kind of have that thing because, because let's be honest, that is yeah the art world. Like that is a museum senior director. I made the joke that she's got BSDE, like big senior director energy when she's walking <laughs> around. She's just got that presence where, like, people turn their heads and artists are very reverent. They're like, oh, my God, like, this woman. Or, like, opinion. no, no, no. Like, if you worked for her, like, you know she, like, walks in, like, tosses her bag. Meryl, and, like, Meryl Streep style. Yeah, and, and, like, Devil Wars Prada. One, one assistant is, like, quivering, like, opening the Pellegrino, and the other one is, like, putting down her like flat white yeah. just in I was time. gonna say matcha but yeah flat white like perfect like the perfectly heated temperature like you know organizing everything like opening her computer with all the tabs you know what I mean have already gone through her emails like sorted out the trash all prioritized what emails to answer first like you know, she's really, like, nailed that, like, devil wears Prada, except in this case, it's, like, devil wears perfectly curated vintage McQueen. Like, yeah, that's what oh. it was. <laughs> and I mean, I kind of, like, I, like, I, like, love these characters. To me, she is a supervillain, but not, like, a supervillain, like, she's, she's got lasers coming out of her eyes and she's gonna... Eviscerate like a village or something like that. She's just like a supervillain in the sense that like she makes me deeply uncomfortable, but she's like so beautiful. It reminds and, me, yeah, and intelligent. Like they definitely yeah. have that PhD like in every scene, like after her name, and she knows her shit, which makes her even more unapproachable and terrifying. <laughs> And I like I love her. Like I don't want her to not be on every single episode. This is such a niche reference, but it reminds me of like the Dark Knight Rises, the last Christopher Nolan Batman film, where Marianne Cotillard is liked throughout the whole movie and has like a, a kind of love affair with with Bruce, and is you think she's good, you start to trust her, and then by the end, she's actually the big bad. Like she's the villain. It's like she was so stunning throughout the movie. You liked her. You thought she was an ally, and then like I'm not saying Melissa Chu is gonna do a a villain turn in this reality show. But like, there is something about her where I'm just like a little skeptical and watching her. Another guest that popped up in the show that we should talk about is Adam Pendleton. Yes. Who I loved. I love. I love his work since I've seen it. I think first at the Whitney and then obviously I've just kept up with the career. He came in as a guest judge. Mm -hmm. Each episode seems to have a commission theme. Mm -hmm. So it's like this, this theme this week was gender identity. And each artist was tasked with creating a work of art. Mm -hmm. They had 48 hours to do it. Actually, two days, but 
I think 10 hours each day to create the artwork. What I liked about the show is that they actually told the artist that this was coming months in advance so that actually the artist did have time to think about the project. They couldn't execute upon it, but they could sketch out ideas, figure out what materials they would need to do it. And thus, when the, the two-day window opened up, they could actually go out. So they had to base it around a, a whatever gender identity meant to them. And Adam Pendleton was one of the guest judges, along with Kenny Schachter, for this exhibition. And Adam's Adam was like heat check player off the bench, just crushing it. Like everything he said, I thought was on the money. I thought he was rational. I thought he was compelling. He was powerful. I was just really into it. What'd you think about Pendleton's performance? Pendleton's performance? Okay, so I was amazed because I Googled where Adam Pendleton went to school because I was expecting to read something like really fancy, like he went to Yale, he went to SAIC, or he went to, you know, RISD or something. Because I was like, oh, he must have like some hardcore like crit experience, yeah. you know, whatever. And and then to my surprise, like he actually doesn't seem to have like the traditional like formal art education. No, it says on his CV, a 2002 art space independent study po- program in Pietrasanta, Italy. That's, that's I it. I mean, which maybe that he had really great teachers there, or really great peer group there whatever it does who it doesn't who cares doesn't yeah. matter but my point is is that when he walked into that space mm-hmm. i mean i i was joking and i used the word cunt which i mean i i call like my cats cunts on occasion <laughs> sorry Rumi in paris i mean like a lot of things are cunts to me on but I was like, wow, he's he's being such a con, but like in a good way. I was like surprised because he, he he was just very direct and like unafraid of hurting people's feelings, but not in like a reality TV show. Like I'm gonna throw white wine in your face just to like start a fight with a wall, you know? Like you know, you know when you're like watching like The Bachelor or like, my favorite, yeah. Um. Finished it last like night. Like any of these TV shows where you're like, oh my God, these arguments like don't make any sense. Oh, this they is, feel like, like producer scripted. Them yeah. You're, like, like my brain cells are melting. Please, <laughs> please, please, please stop. Like he walked in and he actually gave like really concise, meaningful. I don't even, I don't even know if they were 30 second. We'll, we'll call them 15 to 30 second soundbite critiques that made perfect sense mm-hmm. were were pro- very applicable probably were helpful to the artist mm-hmm. and then like moved on were inoffensive it wasn't like a personal attack on the artist which is what a critique is meant to be it's not meant to be like i mean i remember they used to say this in art school and it was very 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 hard to take for all of us art school survivors out there holding hands spiritually on another plane like i remember my fir- first art school critique probably like my first 10 how like i would basically like hold my breath through the entire thing and then as soon as it was over i would act like it was like i was going to the bathroom and then i would like run to the sfai 
library, go to like the very farthest, weirdest corner, and then like put my head in the corner of where the books were and like dry heave cry. (laughs) I hated critiques and it took a while to get the skin thick enough like and also like you would exact your revenge by also being like oh yeah you don't like my work wait such a toxic environment wait wait till (laughs) wait till i critique your work in four weeks or whatever but like yeah no you know you really like have to learn how to not take it personal and remember that it's like sort of part of the process and I, I mean, I always joke because like I know in law school, they run you through these simulations of like what it's like to be in court and go to court and like argue a case and like you win, you you lose, whatever. And that is very much what it's like when you're in art school and you've got to sort of argue your case for an artwork. But in many instances, when it comes to a crit, there's a very long period within an art crit where you're not allowed to talk. That's the whole point. You have to just sit there and be quiet because it has nothing to do with what the other, it has nothing to do with what your intent was. It's all about how the viewer perceives it. Right. Right? Because that's what you have to get used to. Mm -hmm. You have to get used to removing yourself and whatever your feelings were and what you were thinking, and you have to get used to, like, how is this actually perceived? Right. So you have to get really, really thick skin because you could have made something that was, like, deeply personal. You thought you perfectly communicated, but all of a sudden somebody else is looking at this and they're like, no, 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 that is not what I'm seeing at all. Right. So- Adam Pendleton got cut straight to the heart of it. And I was like, whoa, okay. I thought he was a very good judge on it. I hope they bring him back. I don't know who else they're going to be. I, no, I, we do know some of the other people that'll, that'll be coming on. We'll probably be live streaming it again. Yeah, episode two is now out. So we'll, we'll do it again maybe yeah. tonight or sometime this week. Yeah. I wanted to say like during this this week, the social issue, as I mentioned, was gender identity. And each artist created a work and they're all very different. I mean, we weren't looking at, so there's seven artists. We weren't looking at seven paintings. We were looking at, like, I'll go through them really quickly. Frank Buffalo Hyde painted a picture of a a bird, a cardinal, cardinal. which to him has some sort of gender fluidity concept behind it. Because they can, some cardinals can be born intersexed, basically. Something related to those lines. Sira Khan did these... I guess prints or screens or scans of passports and this like assemblage, colorful creation. Jillian Mayer, who, by the way, Hildy turned me on to this I Am Your Grandma YouTube video that Jillian made in like 2011, and I'm obsessed with it. It's just, it's so cool. It's like, it's got 5 million views on YouTube. And you guys have to watch it. We'll link it in the bio just because I think Jillian deserves to have more people to rediscover that video. It's it's a catchy song. It's a, a love letter to her future grandchild. And it's got this weird horror thing. I won't spoil it. Wait, it, but... it starts off in the beginning. She's like, one day I'm going to have a baby. <laughs> and you, <laughs> I can't even do it. How does it go? It's like, one day I'm going to have a baby. And that baby will have a baby. 
and you will call me like it's this amazing song like it and it's a music video yeah and it's very early inter, i mean internet video like 2011 it's it's brilliant it's brilliant and i didn't know when we were watching the episode that it was her and she was like one of my like art school art girl crushes like yeah. i worshipped her my friends and i were obsessed with that video shout out jillian she was in the live chat when we were streaming just talking about it with us and we were like oh my god jillian what's up it was great so i was jillian created a work it was like this sculpture that emitted pheromones, pheromones like testosterone estrogen this kind of thing kenny Schachter shit on it but you know the next artist was jennifer warren who actually won that week's competition again you win it's they're keeping track of it and i think maybe she got a, a cash prize something or maybe not i forget but she won the week and it was this figurative painting of her childhood her upbringing in a kind of surreal style it was a pretty beautiful painting um and you know some of the judges they they obviously really liked it claire kemb who who is a, a teacher, a school teacher. She's a Yale MFA. That was the Yale MFA that yeah. we kept talking about. I she, don't know. I thought she mentioned Yale. I, she, I, I think in the episode, we, we could have kept, if anybody wants to like create a drinking game around the <laughs> show, I don't drink obviously, but you could <laughs> you do shots. You would be very drunk with how many times she mentioned Yale. Like every... <laughs> Other sentence was Yale, 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 Yale. So she went to Yale, guys. <laughs> she created these works based on the names of her children that she teaches at art school. No, at, she goes to teaches at a public. Oh yeah, school. public school, and it's like these abbreviated letters of their names, and it was in this pattern. But what I wanted to highlight about her work is that she used the material caustic, and you probably know more about it than I do. And what was the show did right? was it took the time to explain what that was with a, a verbal summary by, I forget who, maybe it was Melissa, mm -hmm. but also in the text on screen that kind of did a definition of what caustic And the showing medium. her yeah. making it. And yeah. that is something that the show I think did really well. There was a couple other art words or concepts that they took the time to explain in a digestible format for the audience, which I think is needed. Because I think a lot of people know what oil or acrylic is or what marble is with sculpture, but like- caustic that's something a little more niche and they took the time to actually explain what that was and educate the audience which i thought was a good thing that they did mm -hmm. just to wrap up here jamal barber was he described himself as a printmaker he did this figurative black and white print of a of a, of a strange head with the female form body and then let's get to the the creme de la creme mr misha khan mm. created a huge banana amazing on resin which i i want to buy <laughs> <laughs> Misha, I, if you're listening, just slide into DMs. We'll, we'll I know I've already slid into Misha's <laughs> DMs. I think Misha's work. I, I when I saw that he was participating, I was like, I've heard of this guy. Where did I hear of this guy? It, something about him. Misha, when I was working at Christie's, did a sale of NFT furniture wow. in 2020, like pre-pandemic. Really? Yes, he created furniture that would exist in a metaverse space that didn't make actual physics sense, but it was this collection of chairs and couches and all these types of things in an NFT format. Because Misha is, he, he blurs the line of design and fine art and creates- Who does know, he show with? Misha shows with- Is it Friedman, ben, Friedman Benda? Misha shows with Friedman Benda. Yeah. Yeah, so they, they obviously have a lean towards, towards design. 
And Misha created this really funky banana, which he described as being historically referenced as like the male thing, but he gave it some feminine features like seeds, because you never really see the banana seeds depicted in, in art. So it was this blend. The judges actually like hated it, didn't they? They were like all, all no, out on it. I thought that was fake. Oh. Like I thought, I thought that that was sort of the Bravo ness, even though this is not made by Bravo. I thought that was like fake drama. <laughs> and here's where I differ from you. You called it a beautiful painting. The painting that one, that one for this episode. While I have seen Jennifer Warren's other work that they show, you know, earlier in the episode, they show her studio at home and her surrounded in her works. She is a very talented painter. She has a lot of other works that are great. I thought the actual painting that won this competition did not look finished and had a very oversimplified, I'm going to get into that in a second, very oversimplified sort of concept behind it and it to me it looked like a thrift store painting it had it, it because of its unfinished quality and because it did not look like she had a handle on the the medium itself the paint itself it just it it just didn't it did not look finished maybe it's because i didn't see it in person and it was on tv but i just didn't think it looked done um and, you know, that's my opinion. I wasn't there. I didn't see it in person. I thought they gave the award to the wrong person. I thought Misha Khan or that very strange sculpture emitting pheromones and male pheromones at the same time was, you know, kind of so out there that it was, you know, warranted in a, some kind of award. But I think my problem with the the premise of you know episode okay there's there's two problems that i already can like foresee in the show for me personally as an artist and as somebody who just wants more entertainment that stimulates me mm -hmm. um and i'm sorry but i'm just like so tired of everything dumbing me down and yeah you and i like to like hate watch the Bachelor, whatever, but like I, I really do wish that they made better and better TV that stimulated and fed people such as myself and such as like my peers and the people I know out there that you know have an intellectual life and read books and look at art and whatever. Is like I. I was very disappointed that on, like, episode one, they went for, like, the lowest sort of cultural denominator of, like, let's just be, like, as trendy as possible and ask every single artist here to make a work about gender identity. And it's, like, out of that entire group of artists... I don't, you know, I I I felt like they were forcing an issue that isn't necessarily like what every single person on the planet 
who's an artist needs or wants to be making art about. Right. It's so limiting. Like, you know, I remember, you know, a million years ago, it is a million years ago. It's like, you know, 11 years ago when I was in art school, you could definitely take a, a myriad of, you know, gender studies courses at my, at all of the schools that I went to. But that was not the only thing that art was about. There's a lot of other areas that you can go and you could, you could, you know, go delve into different areas of human psychology. You could go into like Jungian dream theory, you know, dream theory. Or beauty or love or hate. Surrealism or spirit, you know, the spirituality, the unseen world, the occult, like you could you could go into so many other just spaces and it is it it's frustrating to me and it's so one note at this point because i think that's why so many of the artists actually struggled making that work because it's like why are you sort of like suffocating this group of artists with an issue that ultimately may or may not be like quote unquote their topic du jour i want to say to your point some of the artists even in the show expressed some trepidation about approaching this because i like you said i don't think many of them have thought about these issues when it relates to their work like jamal barber who is the printmaker who did kind of a warped face on a feminine body like he when they were talking to him in the show was like yeah i struggled with this one he something along those lines he expressed that concern so right there like you could see there's a little bit of a shoehorning effect where it's like you will you will paint about this issue and some of the artists struggled to do so i mean some of the artists really embraced it like jillian you know that is a very clear piece about gender identity and i think misha hit on it too Claire's work with her, her students, with their first names, it was it was tough for me to really see the connection. And by nature of how these shows operate, she had very little time to really explain her thought process behind it. But yeah, you're right. It's like some of the projects and I think topics that are going to come up in this show, because everything is around a social issue each week. So there's six episodes to this. And each week we'll have a social issue that they'll be covering. And I feel like for some of the artists, it's going to be fitting a square peg into a round hole and really going to try to do that, which Mm -hmm. is maybe part of the challenge, which is maybe why it could be compelling. I don't know. But final thoughts just on this show, like, you know, give me your kind of your summary. I don't think we'll we'll hit on it every week, every episode on the podcast, but certainly like by the end of it, we'll we'll definitely circle back and just and and have some of these artists hopefully on, you know, on the show. Yeah, I'd love to hear about how it went, you know, behind the scenes. I, I mean, it's a it's a great start, at least, to start getting art TV out there. Everybody knows I'm dying to make a <laughs> Bourdain-style TV show about the art world that I w- would love to host. But the thing that I, you know, think it that it's so funny because... Every time I talk to a television producer or anybody outside of the art world, anybody is people are like, well, you know, there's like, you know, perception about the art world that it's like 
unapproachable, boring, it's too niche, it's not interesting, it's this, it's that. And it's like, yeah, I I get that. I understand why people feel that way. And then what does the art world do every time it has the opportunity to make a TV show or do something? It goes the absolute safest route once again and makes the same kind of safe, very boring, like overly precious, like, ugh, like Sesame Street content Mm. that like, I don't know who the demographic for this TV show really is going to be because it's not going to be for Gen Z. It's not going to be for my mom, your mom. It's not, it's not gonna be for boomers. It's not going to be for, I mean, the average, like basic millennial or elder millennial, they're not going to be watching this show. It's gonna, I mean, it ultimately the show is going to fail. It's going to fail. It's going to have one, maybe, maybe two seasons, maybe. And, and that's kind of, that's, in of itself, sad. Yeah. Because they're not nailing a structure that is interesting enough to a, to a wide audience. And why is that? Because they, they don't take risks and they don't embrace, like, the true, like, and I say this including myself in, the, in, in this next statement, they don't embrace, like, the true weirdos and eccentrics and, like, what is like really beautiful and really chaotic and really spooky and strange and dark about the art world? Like they don't embrace any of that. Instead, they're like, this is Sesame Street. And this week, Almo's going to teach you <laughs> about gender. And to, it's so boring. To put some some data behind it. So I was just looking up the ratings for the show and how it performed the first episode, at least. Like MTV's top shows are RuPaul's Drag Race, 660,000 audience, Jersey Shore, Family Vacation, still going strong after all these years. Shout out to my people. I'm originally from the Jersey Shore. I was Mike the Situation's waiter once. Fun fact. He was very nice. Catfish, Ridiculousness, The Challenge, the latest of The Challenge. Number six is help. I'm in a secret relationship with 211,000. And then number seven, exhibit, finding an ex-grade artist, 184,000 viewers. Right on the- 180, I mean, I have 125,000 184,000, sorry, I misspoke. 184,000. And oh then that's right God. above untucked at 182. So I don't think they are too happy with the ratings for the first episode. That said, like ratings versus streaming, you can make an argument that, you know, the live performance doesn't matter as much. This only captures, you know, who clicked it on Friday night. But I, I'm i with you. I think it is, I think it's a worthwhile watch. Let me just say that. So if you're like hesitant, if you're like thinking about roasting it and you follow Jer and we've made some memes about it, but like, give it a go. Go find it on a streaming platform. We're There's not sponsored. More. We're just saying like, it's worthwhile to watch because some of the artists are pretty fun and compelling yeah, and sure. the structure is good. There's worse things to watch. There's worse things to watch. For sure. Like, like the Jersey Bachelor. Sh- like Jersey Shore Family Vacation. Like The Bachelor. <laughs> okay, so like many of you, I've been reading and reading the news and the words Silicon Valley Bank 
may or may not resonate with you, but I'm no expert yet on the financial system or the bank, but I sit here amongst someone who knows quite a bit more and is much more eloquent in describing (laughs) what exactly is going on and what the ramifications of this could belie us. And the reason that I think that this is important for us to talk about today is because, you know, we have been talking, I've been talking ad nauseum about the upcoming recession basically since June. And I I heard something actually interesting yesterday when I was watching explain ex, an explainer video on what happened on Friday, which you're about to learn about in a second, which is a, a banking expert basically said this. He said, listen, it doesn't matter that we haven't officially been called into a recession. He said for over, you know, 98 percent of the population in the United States, you are living in a recession. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. What just happened on Friday is about to set off a chain of events that will actually solidify that. And I think that now is the time for us artists, people who, you know, more than likely were not born with silver spoons in our mouths to take these things very seriously, understand what is going on, and start thinking about steps that we can take to make ourselves safe, comfortable, and survive (laughs) through these potentially very rough, choppy waters. Yeah. And thank you for that. I couldn't have said it better. I think this is a story that is quite consequential and one of the most important financial stories and economic stories since 2008. And I don't say that lightly. I I don't know how people reacted to the the tweets or the news or the pop-ups when this story broke, thinking that it was some sort of Silicon Valley tech thing. But this contagion, this issue that took place at that bank, it remains to be seen how drastic the impacts will be on the broader economy. But trust me, there will be impacts. And I'll kind of break it down and bear with me here and go with me on this story. Go slow. Yeah, and I'll go slow. And and for those who are more financially savvy out there that really know this stuff, please note, I'm going to bring it down to just the really bare bones, essential things to know and speak plainly so that most of our audience can understand what's going on, which I think is vitally important. Whether you're a creator or you own a business, like these things actually will matter. Let's start off by talking about what a bank is because we need to level set that. There are two types of activities that a, quote, bank can do. One is called investment banking. Now, to summarize investment banking, you can think of like Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or, you know, investment banks or organizations that participate in activities like trading stocks, helping companies do mergers and acquisitions, helping companies raise capital with like an IPO. That's investment banking activities. That's one one side of the banking world. And let's put that actually on the table because that's not what's at, at question here. The other side of the banking world is called commercial banking. And that's something that 
almost, sadly not everyone, but almost everyone in this country interacts with very frequently. That's your checking account. That's your debit card. And how banks work, commercial banks work, is they take in deposits from customers, people. You and I open up a checking account at Chase or whatever bank we want to bank at. And a commercial bank that's not doing these investment bank trading stuff, it's actually a pretty simple business model. They take your deposits. They promise you maybe a, a small savings rate, you know, some bullshit little percentage that they'll pay you. But what they do is they take your money. They don't just keep it in the bank wholesale. They don't just keep it in your account till you can draw at any point. They actually take those funds and they go and they make loans. Things like mortgages, things like business loans, local businesses to get them started. And they hope that through those assets, those loans, that they make a little bit more percentage of points on that than they would with the savings rate that they're paying you as the depositor. Does that make sense so far, Jerry? Yep, I'm following you. Yeah, so that's the business. And Silicon Valley Bank, which it's kind of an unfortunate name given the climate that we kind of have towards the technology sector today, but Silicon Valley Bank is a commercial bank that's been around since the 1980s. This is not a startup bank that just started in the crypto craze. This is a storied institution with a long history. What they do is they take customer deposits and they make loans. The customers that they attract most by the nature of their name and their salespeople and their niche is technology companies in Silicon Valley and venture capital investment type companies. That's their bread and butter. Some other banks focus on construction companies or whatever. Silicon Valley Bank focuses on the technology sector. So here's where things kind of snowballed in the last couple of years. Obviously, the venture community has been going buck wild since the pandemic, actually for the last 12, 15 years, but really the pandemic, things got a little crazy. There were a ton of companies that were raising a ton of money and the natural banking partner for those companies was Silicon Valley Bank. So they took on within the last couple of years an enormous amount of customer deposits, which were the new hot startup who just got funded by some crazy venture capital firm, millions of dollars. They put those millions of dollars into Silicon Valley Bank as a deposit. So how the banking system works really is when they get these deposits, they can make some loans with it, but they can't take 100% of it and just loan it out. Because what if that customer needs those funds to make payroll, to deposit, to draw out, to do anything activity? So they always try to keep a balance of like, hey, at any point, we're ready to give people the money that we're lending out. We'll keep some cash in reserve and we'll do it that way. So here's a dynamic that took place just like the last few months and then really snowballed this week. Because of the Fed's policy and the economy writ large, the number of deposits that were coming in, customers that were coming into Silicon Valley Bank dropped dramatically. I just want to jump in here because from my observation and everything, I'm hearing and listening and reading about the VC bubble as right. People have been calling it has basically burst for a myriad of reasons, but basically people are realizing like, whoa, 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 we need to cool it with this because we need to figure out where we're actually putting our money and be way more judicious and right. careful about these investments it's not just the wild wild west and every single company that we're pouring our money into is not a facebook right 
And so the VC space has been like basically shrunk because of, you know, a, a series of companies that have either IPO'd or not IPO'd proving to be highly unprofitable it, at the end of the day. Yeah. And so therefore, people are like, whoa, VC has been very irresponsible in the financial space. Like, we need to pull back. We need to actually look at books. We need to look at numbers before we're like, giving these teenagers coming out of Stanford $500 million. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. So as plainly as I can speak it, the venture capital space has shrunk within yes. the last year due to the recession, due to a whole bunch of different factors. So Silicon Valley Bank stopped getting so many deposits. But the thing is, the customers that had already existed in Silicon Valley Bank were still spending a fuck ton of money on salaries, on free lunches on technology, R&D, they were still spending a lot of money. So their accounts were diminishing. Remember I told you, the bank doesn't keep 100% of a customer's deposits on hand ready to go. There's this fine balance. They keep some, but they loan out others to try to make money. So the fact that new deposits weren't coming in mm -hmm. and the existing deposit base was shrinking Silicon Valley Bank had a problem with that. They needed to make these customers whole that were requesting money. It's like they swiped their card for $50,000 for an office expense. Silicon Valley Bank had to come up with that cash to ensure that that customer could take that money out. They didn't have the money on hand. They had it invested in a bunch of assets, treasury bonds, mortgage-backed securities. I won't get into it. But they had a lot of money tied up. And... What they started to do was realize, oh shit, a lot of customers are asking for money to pull out. We're not getting any new money. We have to sell and liquidate all these things that we had invested in. So they did. On Wednesday of last week, they announced they did a big sale of some of the assets that they had invested in. They also went and raised new money from investors because they needed more capital to satisfy all these customer deposits that were coming out. But what happened was... A classic bank run. So do you know what a bank run is? Have you ever heard of this or like the idea, the yes, concept? And actually, I, I think I can explain this. Do it. So for, you know, 99% of our American listeners out there, you will know exactly what a run on the bank is because of the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Exactly. So if you remember... Very early on in the movie, the I think it, his name is what Charles Stewart or what what's that actor's name? Charles Stewart's the CEO of Sotheby's. Hitler. Oh no! <laughs> Whoops! <laughs> Shout out Charles if he's listening. James Stewart. James, James Stewart. Stewart. Okay, so James Stewart, who stays home to run the family bank or whatever, and it, basically the movie's like set in 1929. The economy is like, you know, going to hell as, as it was in the at the end of the roaring 20s. Hmm, 100 years later. What do you know? <laughs> and it there it was a classic run on the bank, which meant that people caught wind that there was financial trouble in the air 
and everybody was like, holy shit, we need to get our money out of the bank right now. Yeah. So they ran to Charles Stewart's bank, just kidding, (laughs) Jimmy Stewart's bank in It's a Wonderful Life. And they are all trying to pull their cash out at the same time. And he's trying to give out all the money, but he starts freaking out because he doesn't have that much money to give. In cash form. In cash. And so, you know, because he's such a good guy in the movie, he starts trying. He starts giving his wedding money away. He'd just gotten married in the movie. And he's like, how how much will hold you over? Will $50, $50 hold you over? And she's, and Miss Edna Smith is like, but I need my money. You know, like, and, and it's like, it's very sad because this really happened in the 1920s and it's happening in the 2020s. It used to happen back in those times. I was reading an yeah. article hundreds of times a year when the banking system was really fragmented and there were thousands of banks out there at any given time, there would be hundreds of bank runs and bank failures a year. Over the last 80, 90, 100 years, regulations have been put in place by the government so that banks are more risk controlled so that they're, they have to keep some, a certain amount of capital on hand. The number is now like 10% of their deposits they need to keep in the form of cash. Right. But I think you just explained it perfectly. I mean, that's a bank run. It's it's mistrust in your in your your bank and then that cascades into everyone mistrusting the bank and racing to pull their funds out as soon as possible. And the bank And what it does is it up. crashes the bank. Because they don't have the cash liquid on hand to pay all those things out. That's what happened with Silicon Valley Bank this week. Because they had to sell those assets I mentioned last Wednesday, it signaled to everyone that had their money at that bank, like, they're in trouble. And there was even some venture capitalists, these big wigs that made investments in these companies, and these companies had deposits at Silicon Valley Bank that told their investments, hey, guys, get your money out right now. So they made the problem worse. Mm -hmm. They might have been doing the responsible, selfish thing, but they actually were responsible partly for decimating this storied institution, which was Silicon Valley Bank. So, and we thought gossip in the art world is that, <laughs> I mean, it's so interesting. Just side note, I I mean, it was, I mean, thank God it happened with the whole Sam Bankman Freed and the FTX thing and CZ's sort of rumor drop on Twitter. Mm-hmm. But like this was also sort of like, I mean, the banking system also basically runs on somewhat of a rumor mill because this was people you know putting out little secret bat signals and being like get your money out get your money out get your money out and what did people do they all ran and they crashed this bank and as you explained and then like the 900 videos i watched yesterday (laughs) also explained to me on youtube government basically had to step in i know i'm saying the wrong word but it's like a conservatorship Basically, the phrase is receivership. Receivership. I think it's receivership. Yeah. <laughs> on the bank. They took control. They, I mean, they had literally just, to take control yeah, we over run, the bank. We run the play. It's basically a form of bankruptcy. I mean, I know that's a nice phrase to use out there, but it's like, this is now a bankruptcy situation. All of you guys that had deposits here, you are now in line for a bankruptcy proceeding. They actually said, look, we'll give you a little coupon for your uninsured funds. So I don't know if people, this is something a little more niche, but. You probably have seen this thing called the FDIC, you know, 
It's in the window of every bank. Right. It's like they will insure your deposits up to 250 grand. That's the current number. Like if the bank disappears, the federal government makes sure if you have $250,000 in the bank or less, that you'll get all that money back from the government. Anything above, it's uninsured, you're fucked, whatever. Silicon Valley Bank- Wait, 250000 I think you said $250. No, 250000 yes. Yeah. But Silicon Valley Bank, like the vast majority of the funds were in there were uninsured. So, right. So this- this is now a huge problem where there's like, no one really knows the number, but it's definitely tens of thousands of companies now that are in, they're basically had all of their money evaporate overnight. So why do you think this is going to be sort of another I, 2008 or you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Like, why does this matter for everyday people? Because this seems like an issue that's far flung and related to the tech sector. I mean, fuck those guys. They made a lot of money, right? Two things. One- the company is affected by this run on this bank, those depositors. We're not talking about Google or Facebook, Meta. We're talking about the next generation of American innovation. These are companies that are doing diagnostics for breast cancer treatments and breast cancer awareness and doing projects with the environment, the next generation of solar. Like These are the innovative small companies that give America a competitive edge out there that can't make payroll next week, mm -hmm. that are now effectively bankrupt themselves. Mm -hmm. But here's the more important thing. When people see what happened to Silicon Valley Bank, even if they don't bank there, they are now going to look all the other banks across the country, not JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, you know, Bank of America. Those banks are too big. But smaller banks, First Republic, there's tons of small credit unions, regional banks. That when I went out today to the... I pharmacy. I was like driving around looking at like this, at just the smaller banks in our town. And I was like, you're fucked on Monday. You're fucked on Monday. Yeah. So those smaller <laughs> banks, people are taking another look at them. And those smaller banks don't focus on v venture capital and technology companies. They focus on mom and pop retail stores yes. and plumbing businesses and your personal freaking income, your personal savings there. Like, they could potentially also be at risk here for another bank run, which is terrifying, which could really bring an economy to its knees. I mean, truly. It'll, firstly, it'll make the big banks even more powerful. So if you're like, yeah, that's your, that's your vibe, like that's what will happen if we allow all these other smaller banks to fail because of the Silicon Valley bank fear. What that does is it, it I mean, how many people could not make payroll now if these other banks fall? And like what started off as a Silicon Valley problem now will cascade not only to America's prowess as like an innovator in a new economy, in a 21st century economy, but now it could cascade down to every mom and pop down the street. There could be massive bank runs. What's happening right now, and then I'll turn it over to why it matters to kind of the art world, but what's happening right now, it's Sunday, March 12th. This weekend, tons of companies are meeting in boardrooms deciding how to fix this problem. The government is sitting there trying to figure out what do we do about the situation. Mm -hmm. I just read right now, Janet Yellen, the chairman of the Fed, announced they will not be saving Silicon Valley Bank. This is breaking news. So I I wanted to like add to this because I called my brother this morning to talk to him about this. He's a nurse and I'm like very highly protective of him. And like I always want to make sure he's going to be okay. And I'm like, what's going on? Like... <laughs> Where are you putting your money? What are you doing? Like I, you know, he's my baby brother. I want him to always be okay. And, you know, like 
the thing is, is that just two weeks ago, or maybe it was like a week ago, I was listening to one of the like finance podcasts that I subscribe to. And what's so interesting is I was listening to an economist talk about something that was already an issue a month ago or no, 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 like like four months ago that is going to be an even bigger issue now, which is the fact that the U.S. has already hit its debt ceiling. Like we we have overspent we have this is why it's important to pay your taxes like we basically have overspent and what traditionally you know governments will do in these types of situations when the economy is good is they'll just print more money and recirculate more money into the economy but because that is what we have been doing since 2008 to try to recover from the 2008 recession, we can't do that anymore. Because if we do that, the dollar, which is regarded as one of as the safest, it's called the reserve currency. It's, it's what so much of the world operates right. and pegs itself around. Yeah, as like the safest currency in the world, right. um, we will lose that status, and so that is why the Fed has been doing all these things that feel like torture to so many like average Amer- Americans, like raising interest rates and doing all these things to like manage inflation, but also like tank the economy, tank the economy. And it's really crazy because you say like they're coming out saying like, we're not going to save this bank. You know, it's kind of interesting slash scary to think like what else is on the chopping board here and what else they're just going to say, you know what, we're not saving this. It could be catastrophic. And I, and I don't say that lightly. I'm not trying to scare people. But we could be looking at a real systematic bank failure of regional banks, which affects so many millions of people across this country. And we don't even know. That's the first order effects. That's what's happening right as a direct result of this bank failing. We can't even begin to think about the second and third order effects that will knock on from this. Like I was just reading today, Etsy. You know, a platform that does, you know, sell, helps you sell your stuff. There's reports that they're going to now have trouble paying out people that are selling on their platform due to the Silicon Valley bank issue. That's not something that you, you thought would happen on Thursday and Friday when this news broke, right? That's just one example. There are countless ways that this could propagate throughout the economy because of how interlinked our banking system is. So I want to just put a put a cap on the kind of story. There's other things we can get into mm-hmm. about why it happened, but let's turn it over to you, the listener, what yes. this means for you. Because referring back to what I just said about second and third order effects, this could have an impact and very well may have an impact on the business of being an artist, of being a gallery owner, of selling work in this environment. 
Yes. So Jerry, you know, what are your thoughts on, well, let me ask you, let's start off with this. I mean, you've been an artist for a long time now. You've been an artist throughout economic cycles. You know, what are some lessons you've learned as an artist during periods where the economy isn't doing? Okay. Well, I just, okay. So back premise for anyone who's new to the podcast, I do want to say for the record, I don't have kids because I think having kids puts you in a different situation maybe than anything that I'm about to say because I don't, I have the only mouths that I have to feed are my cat's mouths. And mine. No, you, I, <laughs> you cook for me sometimes. We, we, we co-work on that situation, <laughs> right? Um, she made me meatloaf last week. I felt like very 1950s. It, his dreams came true. <laughs> I I wish I had had a like, cute little apron for that. No, so I, I just want to say that having been an artist who, you know, d- definitely did not come from a family of spectacular people means to put it lightly my family was heavily heavily affected by 2008 i you know came out of school probably with the dumbest degree possible to have coming out of a coming like straight into like the midst of like what a recession could be felt I just want to like say a few words of affirmation here and a few <laughs> things that I really believe. Like this is this this is like no no bullshit like all love talk here. First of all, no matter what you do for money in the next, you know, couple of months, years, I mean, they're they're talking like 2025 to equal this out. You are still an artist. Okay. So like if you are a nanny, be be an, be an artist nanny. If you are a waitress, wait waitress, waitress, be a be an artist waitress. If you are a line cook, be a artist line cook. Be, you know, it doesn't matter if you've if you become a middle school teacher or a substitute teacher or you become, you know, if if you go into graphic design, if you go, if you take any other sort of step outside of that very fine line called, quote unquote, fine art, I want to 100% absolutely wrap my arms around you and reassure you from the bottom of my heart that you are a not selling out b still 100% an artist c going to be a better artist for whatever experiences you gain and garner from whatever experience you have to go through and like no one is no one is better than you because you have to like take a job 
you know, like I, I lately I've been talking to some girls. I've, I've had two conversations in one week from also women who are like not of mean, do not come from families of means who like have come to New York and like have told me like, oh, you know, like I feel shame, you know, that like my family wasn't rich and that like I like seek, you know, secretly also like take these other jobs or like that I don't know about like furniture or I didn't know what a Birkin bag was or I didn't this or I didn't that. And I'm just I actually ac- accidentally told a friend of ours at dinner the other night that I wanted a slapper in the face. And then I was like, oh, my God, I should probably, like, not have said that at dinner. But, like, you know, there there's some weird, terrible stigma that, you know, I think we inherit when we're around people in the art world for too long, where we start, as artists at least, where we start thinking and feeling like, if we're if we're not living like our art collectors and we're not living like the 0.01% of artists like you know bless them like a like a Jonas Wood or something who yeah. have you know just you know are making tens of millions of dollars a minute on their paintings that there's something fundamentally flawed and wrong with us and that that's like a a moral failing on our behalf and that it looks bad and there's something that we need to like cover up i just want to like really as like your sort of one-way friend (laughs) (laughs) reassure you that there is nothing wrong with you for having to work so i just i want to i i want to start there I think because, that's, yeah. because I, you know, I have worked so many different jobs and, you know, I'm kind of in a limbo space myself right now. Like I'm waiting. I just reapplied to go back to, to business school. I don't know if I've even announced that on the podcast, but I also, you know, but I'm also working on a painting, but I'm, but I've also really started considering like, maybe I need to get a job in town, you know? And what would that look like? What jobs do I qualify for? Or like, should I start consulting other people on the side or whatever? Because I don't really know if I want to work like directly in the art world. (laughs) And so remember, like Jerry Gagosian sitting here telling you, like, I'm considering it truly and deeply. So like no one, no one's above it. That's number one. I think number two, and Emily May Smith, I think, stated this like beautifully is like artists were survivors. Like we get a bad rap of being like, we're not good with money, but actually, like, we're great at stretching money out and being right. incredibly thrifty with like how to survive. I know it's illegal to like give financial advice, right? online or it's it's illegal to give financial advice yeah we can't like tell you what to do with your money can you like ask me questions about things i've done okay what have you done okay (laughs) so government bonds i have bought government bonds 
government bonds are a pretty safe space right now to put your money. And Again, she's if, not advocating for it. She's just saying what you have done. This is what I have done. Okay. Just and if you do not touch them, I think it's for four years. Whatever the year maturity they all have, it's all different. Some yeah. Are, some are like two years, some are 10, some are 30, some are Yeah. The ones that I bought, I think, are four years. It's a 4% return. That is obviously much better than a savings account. You don't just want your money sitting in a savings account. And if you can do that, even if it's a little bit here, a little bit there, it's better than just a traditional savings account. And at the end of the day, you'll have a little nest egg. The other thing that I have done is finally, and I will just continue to repeat my very young age of 37 because I finally got a Roth IRA, but I got mine through a company that also does it through like AI robo investing. It's a company called Wealthfront that I found. I thought it was very interesting. We're not sponsored. I'm not sponsored by them. Google them. It and if it's something that you think is interesting, go for it. You can put as little or as much as you want. Another thing that I personally do is I have like five apps on my phone. One being, I think it's called Mint. The other one being Rocket Money. And I constantly monitor my spending constantly and then within rocket money you can set up this thing that i think is really cool which is like a sneaky savings account so it basically can like save for you just like like let's say you spend 2637 at the grocery store or something. That little extra, I don't know how many cents, 67 cents or or sorry, I just did the math wrong, 63 cents or whatever. Basically rounds it up to the next dollar and takes the difference. They'll throw that into a savings account. Right. And you can set a goal that you want for yourself. And then you just don't have to look at it. Right. And over time, you can actually like unknowingly hit savings goals and like create little savings nooks for yourselves. And then the other thing that I do, and I just, and then this is my last thing that I'm just going to say that I've done is if you are going to get a credit card, which I really advise against because, you know, debt is terrible. Try to get credit cards where you can earn points, obviously, and points that you can use for real life things to get money back. Like, you know, I just 
I I finally like got finally got a good realistic one that I could use. And the other day I I like never cashed in my points. Like I didn't I didn't like know how to do it. And I was like, I got I got a lot of points here. Well, what, how does this work? You know, and it was like cash in your points for like I don't know whatever travel or for cash, and it was like one for one. And I was like, give me the cash. Yeah. And it was like a nice, hefty little chunky chunk. And I was like, thank you very much. So if you're going to get a credit card, or or in my case, Mm -hmm. as a credit card user, (laughs) again, because I'm not giving you financial advice, I'm talking about what I do. As a credit card user, I have chosen to only use credit card companies that are going to reward me. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. If you can afford, I, you know, I personally, also, highly, re- oh, no, no, I can't recommend that because I can't recommend anything to you. What else can I say without? I mean, I have one. You have one. I think from a practical perspective, this is something that when I did the episode with Emily May Smith back in the day that we said, from a practical perspective, if you are an artist and you are currently owed money, send that follow-up email, text, phone call, and push to get paid would be my advice. So if you have money outstanding from a gallery, from a collector, it's due. You're calling it in. Just as a, as a word of advice, practicality, do yourself a favor. If you're hesitating, you think it's an awkward conversation, you don't know how they're doing, no. If you've earned that, if you've sold your work with that, go and get your money. Stay organized, stay on budget. And I think you at the end of this cycle, this thing is about to pop off this week. We'll really see the ramifications, but it doesn't hurt to be prepared, to be organized, to be caught up, to be in control because you can only control certain things in your life and you should control them. And there are other things that will happen out there in the world that you can't. And all you can do is look inward. I have one more. I'm going to get off my high horse of telling people what I have done in my very perfect self-righteous life to live this perfect self-righteous life but a decision that i made about a year ago was to leave living in a major american metropolitan city i live within an hour of one, but I have chosen not to. And because of that, I have also been able to buy a home. Now, some people may be thinking to themselves, screw you, Jerry, I can't buy a home. Okay, that's fine. Fair enough. I have looked at rent in areas such as the area that we live in. And for the amount of money that people are paying to live in 
300 square foot closets in Manhattan, you can live in a very decently sized home on a nice size piece of property, even as a rental, and use that as your studio as well, and still live within 13 minutes of a train that would get you into the city within an hour. Right. So I think that this idea of I've got to live in New York, I've got to live in Los Angeles, if I don't, or Chicago, or, you know, whatever. The, the, these ideas that you've got to live in these places that are so insanely expensive are going to freaking suck you dry. And in times like this, that may be something to reconsider. Jerry, that was a fun one. I hope everybody enjoyed the podcast today. As a friendly reminder, we are an independent podcast still, and we really do rely and appreciate your support. And that's through five-star reviews, leaving a comment. So please go ahead and do that for us. Jerry, anything to plug this week? What are you working on? Well, I have written an essay that I will be releasing on gagosian.com. So head on over and subscribe. When's it going to be released so that the audience can prepare for it? Well, it'll be released tomorrow for the VIP subscribers. Nice. And it'll be released on Wednesday for the premium subscribers. Amazing. So go definitely and check that out at gagosian.com for the latest version of the Jerry Report. What's the topic? Just so we can tease it a little bit. I'm going to be talking about how we think critically about internet hate. Internet hate. <laughs> well, I can't think of anyone more fitting to discuss that <laughs> than you, Jerry. All right, guys, this has been Art Smack episode 17. See you later. It was so fun spending time with you. See you next week. Bye. Bye.